Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week on the program, we are joined by Matthew Cunningham who is the author of, amongst other things, Mobilising the Masses, Populist Conservative Movements in Australia and New Zealand During the Great Depression, as well as the co-author of the recently released Histories of Hate, The Radical Right in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Thanks for joining us, Matthew. Kia ora. Kia ora. Thank you for having me. I guess just to begin with, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this area of research? Sure. I feel like I should start with my usual disclaimer, and this is a disclaimer I, I use whenever I tell anybody my my chosen area of research, is that it's not through any shared political allegiance, more, more a sort of morbid curiosity, I guess. It, it started oh, pretty early, I guess, when I, when I first went back to university to study history in 2008. And I very quickly became fascinated with the mobilizing power of fascism, particularly in Europe during the interwar period. And it quickly became apparent that I couldn't really do much original research in that area because I, I, I don't speak German, I don't speak Italian. So I started to look for analogues closer to home and I came across a whole swathe of different groups in Australia and New Zealand during the interwar period that, you know, some, some were overtly fascist, some were fascist adjacent, some weren't really fascist at all. They were kind of conservatives and populists. And so there was this really interesting mix. And I, I guess I just really wanted to understand it. I wanted to understand how so many people could be so drawn into ideas that, to me, in some cases, seemed morally repugnant. And then, of course, as time went on with the, the global financial crisis, the rise of the Tea Party movement in the US, more recently the rise of Trump and MAGA, Brexit, and basically the, the increasing march of what Kaz Mudd called the, the fourth wave of the radical right in the 21st century has really just kind of kept me engaged in the subject, I guess, because I, I want to understand, I want to know why people are drawn to these ideas. What is their power? Uh, 
in Mobilising the Masses and in your chapter in Histories of Hate, you talk about some of these groups. Could you give our listeners a bit of an idea of the scope of the the groups that we're talking about? Because as you mentioned, they they were more successful than some people might realise. Sure. So my specialty is uh, the interwar period, particularly the Great Depression. And during the Great Depression, there was sort of this this, this huge kind of conservative backlash against the political order of the time. It arose first in Australia, sort of around late 1930, early 1931. And what, what, what we saw emerge were these, what I termed conservative populist groups, but what they themselves at the time, they basically called themselves citizens movements. They were middle-class businessmen and professionals for the most part, who were concerned about the economic crisis. They were concerned about government spending. They were terrified of inflation. And they were also very concerned about, they believed there was a sort of international communist conspiracy. Some on the fringes even thought that the depression had been engineered as part of a communist conspiracy. And some even further on the fringes tied that in with with anti-Semitism and, you know, long-standing theories of, you know, alleged Jewish conspiracies and Zionist conspiracies. But the, the, the bulk of the citizens' movement rhetoric didn't really go, go down that sort of conspiratorial route. They were more focused on uh, combating labour, but also combating party politics more generally. In Australia, they positioned themselves as an alternative to the conservative political parties of the time, the nationalists. And there was a very real fear amongst mainstream conservatives that these citizens' leagues might split the centre-right vote and hand Labour another victory in 1931. So some of these groups, for example, there was the Citizens' League of South Australia, which had close to 25,000 members at its height, It was dwarfed by the All for Australia League in New South Wales, which had about 130,000 members at its height. And in Victoria, there was a similar group, the Australian Citizens League, which later took on the name of the New South Wales group, the All for Australia League. But yeah, what, what eventually tripped these groups up was that they, essentially they realized that they had to take a stand they, they had to take a more firm position on whether conservative, conservative economics was more important or getting rid of party politics was more important. And whenever they took a stand one way or the other, they ended up alienating a chunk of their members, and that sort of hastened their downfall. Of course, as, as part of this milieu, there were other more militant groups that arose, the, the most well-known being the New Guard in New South Wales, they were, you know, arguably more fascist and certainly later in their life they took a, an overt fascist turn. But they very much thought there was an international communist conspiracy centred on the Lang government, the, the Jack Lang Labour government in New South Wales. And at the height of their paranoia in early 1932, they plotted to overthrow the state government. That plot didn't end up going ahead for various reasons. And so they're more known these days for their antics in upstaging the Premier at the opening of the Harbour Bridge in March of that year. 
So a similar sort of thing in New Zealand. There weren't really any militarist groups like the New Guard, but in 1933 there was a group called the New Zealand Legion, very, very similar to the Citizens Leagues in Australia. At its height, it had just over 20,000 members. And again, it was concerned about government spending and wanted to abolish party politics. Very, very similar sort of populist rhetoric. And But it too ended up falling apart. Although over here in New Zealand, for slightly different reasons, there was a very strong social credit monetary reform tradition here in New Zealand during the Depression. And that was kind of a wedge that split the New Zealand Legion. So yeah, it was a, it was a very interesting time. And I, and I liken a lot of those citizens leagues to the Tea Party protests in the US about a decade ago. Um, Matthew, what um, role did uh, the question of race or the race question play um, in the interwar years as far as these groups uh, were concerned? Yes, it's a good question. So the groups themselves were, or their members, I should say, were undoubtedly racist, but in the sense that they were simply representing the views of the time. So race didn't feature heavily in their in their rhetoric. In fact, I would actually argue it's almost non-existent in their rhetoric. But having said that, there were certain there were aspects of race that were sort of implicit in some of their arguments. So, for example, they they really drew on the pioneer myth of the nineteenth century. You know, the idea of the hardy, self-sufficient pioneer who broke in the land and who, you know, didn't need the government to to prop them up. I mean, of course, it was it was an, it was absolute bollocks because you know <laughs> the 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 pioneers in the nineteenth century were heavily dependent upon on the government for a number of different things. But implicit in that is that it invisibilizes indigenous populations because obviously the basis of the pioneer prosperity was upon the 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 theft, legal or otherwise, of Indigenous land. Uh, and that wasn't really acknowledged at all by these groups. Although, again, that's somewhat par for the course for the time. The other question I had, Matthew, in regards to this period in particular, and maybe we'll talk a bit more about it in terms of the longer history of fascism and the far right and so on, but now and and I guess then there's debate about how to situate some of these ideas and these figures on a left right spectrum. And reading through some of the book, it, it that is histories of hate. There's the relationship is not entirely clear. But what can you say about how these groups situated themselves in terms of a left right spectrum? And and what if anything can it tell us about how to understand these more contemporary expressions that we you know, might witness in Australian and around the world today? That's a really good question, and it's one we grappled with a lot when we were working on histories of hate. When I say we, I mean myself and my co-editors, Marina Sleroy and Paul Spoonley, and indeed our contributors. So to use the histories of hate example, we were traversing nearly 200 years of history, and many of the ideas that are commonly associated with the radical right today were at one point fairly mainstream ideas and in some cases were actually championed even more by the left than the right. And, you know, that was a reality that we simply couldn't 
we couldn't ignore. You know, we, we had to deal with that. And so we, we tried to take a, a fluid approach in the book where, you know, while the book is about the radical right, we were also very explicit in saying that these ideas weren't always just the preserve of the radical right. There's a few chapters in there in particular talking about Sinophobia and anti-Semitism and how they were, you know, they were staples of the political left and political labour in the, in the pre-World War II period. World War II marks, a, we argue anyway, an important break point in that in the post-war period, there's a general societal shift, I guess you might say the Overton window shifts, and a lot of the ideas that were, particularly about race, that once held mainstream acceptance became a lot more repugnant. And part of that is the, the, the recoil effect from the Holocaust and Nazi Germany. Part of it is also due to the changed geopolitical situation, uh, moving into the Cold War, decolonization. Britain declining as a global power. And so those ideas start to become more the preserve of the radical right. And instead of trying to push them into the mainstream, they're trying to, uh, they're looking back, I guess, with nostalgia at how they imagine things used to be. And they're trying to return to that, that state. Now, that's a generalization and it doesn't hold true in all circumstances, but it's a useful way of understanding that shift. As for more contemporary groups, so one one bugbear I have when it comes to coverage of uh, anti-mandate, anti-vax groups over the last few years is that people invariably fall back on the far right and white supremacist label. Now, don't get me wrong, there are, there are people, you know, woven in, with those groups who, who are far right and who are white supremacists and who are trying to use those wider conspiratorial sentiments as a sort of Trojan horse. And it's not necessarily just, you know, old school neo-Nazi groups. It's the influence of ideas from overseas like the alt-right and QAnon and sovereign citizenship. But the broader, I guess, milieu like there's a lot of stuff woven into that. You know, I wrote an article about the occupation of the parliament grounds over here last February and March and how there were just so many different threads woven into that group of people, you know, brought together under this loose banner of quote-unquote freedom. You had, you had some genuine neo-Nazis, but there weren't very many, you also had hippies, mumfluences. You had, you know, people championing Tinoranga Tiratanga or Māori sovereignty. You had anti-1080, which is a, a form of pest control in New Zealand, anti-fluoride. Like there, there were just so many different threads in there that couldn't easily be classified as just, as just being radical right. Yeah, I, I don't really have the answers for, for all of that. I think this is something that, that the the academic community is going to be untangling for years. But, yeah, it certainly shows that a simple left-right spectrum is, is not always sufficient to try to understand these sorts of things. Matthew, earlier you mentioned credit systems, uh, the Douglas credit system, 
was an idea that came out of New Zealand and still has a little bit of purchase with fringe political parties in Australia, and I suspect Aotearoa as well. Could you perhaps explain for our listeners what was going on with uh, monetary reform and these movements in, in that interwar period and afterwards? Sure. Well, firstly, I, I'm, I'm going to uh, shamelessly plug my friend Marine and co-editor Marina Slaroy's work in this area. Uh, and he's currently working on, he's working on a number of different things, but one is a book that explores monetary reform in New Zealand during the Great Depression. So buy it when it comes out. It will be great. But taking a step back, so... Douglas Credit originates originally with a, with a thinker overseas, Major Douglas, who came up with this sort of. No, I'm going to I'm going to be frank. It was a half-brained economic theory <laughs> that essentially he he looked at the the capitalist economic system and he saw an imbalance between production and consumption, and he came up with what was called the A plus B theorem, which basically, in a nutshell, said that those who produce will never have enough money to consume what they're producing. Ergo, you will always have an imbalance. Ergo, you need to tweak the economic system to fix that. And part of that was through what he called the national dividend, which was basically giving everybody extra money so that they could buy more stuff. Now, it didn't really attract much attention in, in Australia and New Zealand in the 1920s. But once the depression hit and, you know, as a general rule, when, when in times of crisis, people become more susceptible to more radical ideas. So during the depression, there was a huge upswing in support for this and particularly in New Zealand. So I, I think part of that was because for the vast majority of the depression, a conservative government held the balance of power in New Zealand. And while they were, you know, willing to experiment with some forms of, you know, state intervention, particularly uh, when it came to unemployment, generally speaking, they made all the right noises for the business community in terms of, you know, keeping costs down, deflation, that sort of thing. So there was no, there was no left-wing boogeyman for conservatives to react against as there was in Australia with the Scullin government and the Lang government in New South Wales. So disgruntled conservatives had to turn to something else and monetary reform was it. Douglas Social Credit was certainly a big part, but there were a plethora of groups that arose during this period with all sorts of crazy ideas. And one of the biggest figures was a chap called Arthur Nelson Field. Now Field, and again, I'm drawing on my the work of my, my colleague Marinus here, Field has been painted as an outsider, an extremist and a loner. At the time, he was a respected journalist a respected national journalist. And so when he published a book about this in 1931 called The Truth About the Slump, it was taken seriously. You know, he mailed copies to members of parliament, many of which he, whom he knew, and they quoted it in parliament, some of them. Uh, like, it, it, you know, his ideas were taken seriously. And if, if anyone can claim responsibility for, you know, driving the interest in monetary reform to new heights in New Zealand, during the interwar years, it's it's Arthur Nelson Field. So yeah, you know there were there were several thousand people who who were interested in this, and the the Labour Party sort of started flirting with it a bit. I guess in contemporary speak, we'd call it dog whistling. And that that you know being able to sort of siphon off some of the support from from social credit 
was was arguably one of the things that helped them win in 1935, even if they didn't then go on to implement social credit. So yeah, that's that's a kind of relatively unique aspect of New Zealand's depression experience when it comes to the you know extremism. Um, I think to return to the history's book, I'm wondering if you can outline how the history of the, the radical right in Aotearoa, New Zealand, has been framed in terms of the various periods, having discussed the interwar period, from the colonial era through to its contemporary manifestations. Sure. So we've broken it up into, well, I should say in, in the book we we take a bit of a comparative approach looking at international models and, and seeing how they fit. So international models, particularly in Europe and the US, typically divide the radical right into four periods. And this is in the post-World War II period. We found that model didn't strictly fit in the New Zealand context. What we did in New Zealand was, in in our book, was we, we devoted one section to looking at ideas that were relatively mainstream in the pre-World War II period, and that included, you know, attitudes to Māori and colonisation and also Sinophobia. Then the interwar years, we, we called it an ideolo- ideological cauldron where a whole bunch of ideas were basically stirred up by successive crises, particularly the Great Depression. And this this cauldron of ideas was, was something that groups in the post-World War II period were later able to draw upon. I'm not sure how much detail you want me to go into, but basically, you know, monetary reform, that remains a, a force in New Zealand politics right up until the 1980s. You know, there's a mainstream social credit party that, you know, gains between 5 and 20% of the popular vote during that time. But one thing we also talk about in the book is how the social and cultural shifts of the 1970s, the kind of progressive shifts in, in the space of race relations and women and sexuality and LGBTQ rights from the sort of 1980s onwards, uh, that that kind of gives the radical right a new reservoir of ideas to draw on because, again, attitudes that were mainstream become less acceptable and particularly the the radical right draws on a lot of those themes to this day. So, yeah, it's a... It's a complex mix of ideas, you know. It's one of the reasons we use the word histories in the title because there's, it, it, there's really no one history of the radical right. Yeah, I guess one question that does occur to me in this context in particular is I wonder to what extent do you think that the ideologies and movements that, have, that are discussed in the book would be accurate to, on the whole, characterise them as essentially reactionary political formations? They're, they're negative responses to things like um, the emergence of some kind of multiculturalism or the threat posed by various forms of leftism to uh, the capitalist order. And if, if it's, I guess, if they're beyond reactionary, how else would you characterise them on the whole, if you can? Well, that's a good question. I think I'd hesitate to call them all reactionary. Some certainly are, but... Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that they're all simply reacting to things that have happened and trying to go back to the way things used to be. I mean, that that to me, that's that same definition could be applied to conservatism more generally. 
but you know conservatives in Australia and New Zealand that's partially their ideology but that you know they're also the center right can also be quite pragmatic in a lot of ways and forward thinking yeah i mean one other thread i could talk about i guess is is when you go all the way out to the furthest fringes of the radical right and you find the neo nazis and fascists and that sort of thing arguably that's well i mean it's partly reactionary it's it's partly just you know weirdos wanting a place to hang out with each other but they're also drawing on ideologies that have never really had a home in Australia and New Zealand at least not you know widespread support Uh, and they're trying to introduce those ideas here so yeah I I don't think we could classify them as reactionary for example. I guess in terms of like uh, the relationship between uh, the experience in Aotearoa New Zealand and Australia in particular but also more broadly in the transnational dimension, I'm, I'm wondering uh, if you had a few words to say, Matthew, about the influence of foreign ideologies on the development of the far right or the radical right in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and by the same token, what contributions have been made by various political actors from that part of the world to the international or transnational movement of the radical right. So the... New Zealand radical right has always been an avid importer of foreign ideas. We see it nowadays with the, you know, the the influence of the alt right and identitarianism and, and QAnon and so forth in the in the anti-vax anti-mandate space. But it it's not it's not new. You know, the spread might be faster with the internet, but you know, even going back a hundred years. There was a huge upswing in anti-Catholic sentiment in New Zealand towards the end of World War One, and the leaders of that group were importing huge amounts of literature. Like they were part of these literary circles that spanned the British world, and they were constantly sharing pamphlets and booklets and slideshows and all sorts of things. Um, you know, they they actually maintained their own library over here that members were able to to borrow books from or order books from, you know, from the catalogue. So, yeah, New Zealand's, as I said, they've always been an avid importer of ideas. As for being an exporter of ideas, unfortunately, one of our dubious contributions to the to the world of the international radical right is Arthur Nelson Field. His books still get reprinted today. The Truth About the Slump still gets talked about on the internet but Arthur Nelson Field's work also influenced a young Eric Butler, who then went on to obviously form the, the League of Rights in, in Australia. And then, of course, the League of Rights came back over here and formed a branch over here. So it, it's a you know a bit of a circular thing. Another of our exports is a chap called Arthur Desmond, who was a, a militant socialist who the contributor to our book on, on, on Arthur Desmond, uh, Mark Darby says that he went so far to the left that he fell off the edge. <laughs> and I think it's a really good description. He kind of, he reminds me of the Italian socialists who who were drawn to fascism in the early 20th century. His journey kind of mirrors them. So he was, again, a late 19th, early, early 20th century figure, moved around a lot, you know, from New Zealand to Australia, from Australia to the, to the US. And he wrote a book called Might is Right, in the early 20th century, I think it was. And that, again, is, is still 
talked about on the radical right. Of course, nowadays, you know, he was writing it from a, a left-wing socialist perspective. Now it's, you know, white supremacists and Satanists of all people who are reprinting it as, as being part of their, you know, Kerry Bolton, a figure here uh, on the radical right here in New Zealand, did a reprint of it back in the 80s. Yes, another another export guy called Kyle Chapman, who had a long-standing sort of role in New Zealand's neo-Nazi scene and has now moved on to the anti-vax, anti-mandate scene. He founded a group in the 2010s called, no, sorry, it was earlier than that, right-wing resistance. And while it's folded here in New Zealand, it still has several branches overseas, I believe. So that was a really kind of overt neo-Nazi movement. So, yeah, there's, uh, on balance, I'd say we've probably imported more than we've exported, but we're, yeah, we're certainly, and unfortunately, probably batting above our average. Matthew, perhaps just in closing, I was struck reading the book about maybe some of the parallels to the current situation where seems that with rising inflation, rising unemployment, that things are perhaps ripe for some of these ideas to take hold again. We've seen just in the weekend in Australia at CPAC, seems some of the firebreaks between mainstream conservatism and extremism have failed, at least in Australia. I was wondering how you felt that New Zealand was situated, perhaps going into another financial crisis. Yes, we've seen a bit of that over here as well. Some of the uh, parties on the, the right side of the political spectrum are definitely dog, definitely dog whistling to the to the anti-vax, anti-mandate crowd. In some cases, dog whistling is too subtle a term. It's it's much more overt. So New Zealand First and Winston Peters, for example, are really kind of you know trying to draw on that political crowd at the moment. The ACT Party, to a lesser extent, although they're more interested in the, the sort of anti-treatyist space. So co-governance over here is is a real hot topic at the moment, you know, which is basically political arrangements between the Crown and Iwi Hapu to, to co-govern or co-manage particular assets or particular natural features or particular services like healthcare and education. That's drawing a lot of populist backlash at the moment. So, yeah, there's definitely some jumping of the firebreak at the moment. I, on the whole, however, am generally quite positive about the future. Winston Peters has been a sort of pressure valve for populist ideas in New Zealand since the early 1990s. He draws a lot of support that might otherwise go into, you know, more overt radical right parties. But the thing is, Winston Peters is a consummate politician. Uh, and once he's in power, so Winston Peters in power is a very different figure to Winston Peters on the campaign trail. And, you know, while I don't necessarily agree with his policies, you know, he's, he, you know, he's not what I would call a Trump figure. You know, he's a, he, he's a professional politician and he, and he knows what he's doing. So, yeah, I, I, I don't see there being a major political realignment happening here. I, I, yeah, I'm quite positive about the future. And even if a centre-right government comes into power later this year, you know, broadly speaking, the, the National Party under under Christopher Luxon has has avoided that sort of dog whistling. There have been exceptions, but, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm positive about the future. Well, Matthew, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. If people want to read more of your work, you have a website at matthewcunningham.net. Thanks for coming on. Okay, Pye. Thank you for having me. 
Well, Andy, that is our show. We'll be back next week. See you later. See you then. Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up. Be heard. Call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter. Australia's energy market is broken. Right, but Co-Power gives you better energy? Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a Co-Power member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and Co-Power today and take the power back. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter.